Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. If you haven't done it by now, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And these th- there's a lot in Hebrews 9. I am going to read the whole chapter together, and maybe it's too much, but I think we'll be all right. Um, the, the way it lays out, it, it talks about a lot of familiar things, but the main points are about the overarching message of those things and not the individual. So we could take time to look at all the furniture of the tabernacle uh, from the Old Testament as as we are exposed to those things in our reading. But he really makes the point that it was there, it had its purpose, and he moves it on toward that Christ has offered a greater sacrifice uh, than those things. So we'll talk about it just a little bit. And certainly if you have any questions, we can go into all that. I think it's really neat how Many things in the Old Testament are types of Christ. So, you know, we talk about the golden lampstand. We think that Jesus is the light of the world, right? Uh, and things like that. But So let's uh, take the time to read this awesome chapter. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. So the tabernacle was the holy place. The inner sanctum of it was called the holy of holies, or the holiest of all. That part had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So uh, that's awesome to think about it. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. See, he says that that's all there. He's just reminding you of all that great ways that God had to be worshipped. But he says, we're not going to speak in great detail about that. So he's making another point, and I'm trying to follow the other point that he makes as we read along. Verse 6, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So he'd bring the blood of a sacrifice. The sacrifice had died. It had paid the ultimate price. The blood was brought in uh, to first offer uh, for himself and his sins and then all the people's sins that they'd committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. All these things about the tabernacle were pointing forward to Christ and the work he would do. Verse 9 says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, when 
we think of Reformation, we think of Martin Luther in the 1500s getting people back to the Bible. This Reformation is speaking of the time where Christ would come and have fulfilled all that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to. And that's what he says in verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What Christ set out to do, he did. For all those that in God's foreknowledge he knew would one day turn to him in faith and repentance and faith, he specifically, uh, that blood was for us. The blood of Christ is sufficient to save everyone who's ever lived, but it's efficient to save only those who believe, who are also referred to as the ones God has chosen or the elect. And of course, you know, that's a whole big debate about, you know, all that and stuff. Bottom line is if you place your faith and trust in Christ, you're one of those people. And God knew who they'd be. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he did it to secure the eternal redemption. Uh, so it's really neat how, the, how you know, the, the triune God works. As far as the Father is concerned, the person, Danny Campbell, was saved before the foundation of the world. As far as Jesus Christ is concerned... Uh, Danny Campbell was saved. You know, he was ready to do that the moment he died for my sins on the cross. As far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, December 16, 1984, when I heard the gospel and believed, it all became that deal that had been ready to happen from eternity past, purchased on the cross, made real to me, December 16, 1984. And you've got your own story like that. Eternal redemption. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, say how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, amen, the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we've got eternal redemption. We've got an eternal inheritance made possible by what Christ did. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since he has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So you understand that, right? Um, if you have a will, uh, you've probably some of you made a will. It's not going to go into place until after you die. So for the things to kick in that the will offers, somebody's got to die, right? And that's what it's saying here, you know, that once the Christ died, uh, then all the promises of God, that's why there's a passage in Corinthians that says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, right? So now that he's died, all that his blood could affect is made possible. And it says, he says, okay, now even in the Old Testament, it was ratified by the shedding of blood. Not Christ's blood. It was animal blood. But there was still, and that's what he's going to talk about here. This is pretty neat. Not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. 
wow, if you read back in Exodus 19 and 20, when the people adopted the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, which here's what they're talking about is the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, uh, Moses made a sacrifice, took the blood, mixed it with water. He got that sprinkly thing, the hyssop, right? And I did this back in Waynesboro. I'm not going to do it tonight. But when I preached this passage back then, I actually took and had water, not blood. <laughs> I didn't use Kool-Aid. But, you know, I, I did it on the first few rows like that, you know. And people, hey, you hit me. <laughs> hey, the pastor's throwing stuff at us, you know, and things. Moses did that with all the people. Did that with all the people. But it was actually blood mixed with water. So their clothes, the clothes they wore that day, had sprinkled blood on them. Wow. Um, and look what he says in verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. That's back in Exodus 24.8 is when that came into to happen like that. Right after the events of, give, of them coming out of Egypt and getting the Ten Commands and saying, yes, God has delivered us, we'll do what he says. And he says, will you? Will you really? And they said, we will. And they, they were going to try, you know, and it was testified to with blood. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry to set them apart, to sanctify them. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And then if you've never seen where this verse is, without shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins because of the great transfer that happens through the death of the sacrifice. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. The earthly items in the tabernacle were purified, sprinkled with that blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And then an astonishing thought comes in verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to, had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Every time you sinned again after salvation, he'd have to die for you again if it was that way. They had to have daily, weekly, monthly, yearly sacrifices there at the tabernacle, then the temple. Christ, the, he's God. Him offering the sacrifice, he's a once and for all kind of sacrifice. It's better, right? Like all things we've been talking about in Hebrew, better. Better, better, uh, better leader, better sacrifice, better priest, better offering. But he is appointed. Uh, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, the end of those old ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear again a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now he puts a lot in there, but it's just a few basic points, and we're going to go over those in this message. So the message is eagerly waiting for him from Hebrews 9. And first I want to tell you two stories. Uh, to talk about uh, one being better than the other. Uh, when the preacher David Jeremiah was a boy, his mother had a law. She insisted that David make his bed and clean his room before he went to school. Your parents probably told you that too. You get up, make the bed, ready for the day, right? Some of you did, some of you didn't. David did everything he could to resist that responsibility. So he would get his lunch ready, put his books under his arm, and try to sneak out of the house. When he would get home at night, he'd get a scolding, and his mother would say, David, if you don't start doing what I ask you to do, you're going to be sorry. 
Okay. Do y'all know that David Jeremiah's dad was at one time the president of Cedarville University in Ohio? Uh, a great Baptist school there uh, that uh, in the last 20 years has also affiliated with Southern Baptist, but uh, a great school. Uh, well, time went on like that, but David didn't get any better about making his bed in his room before he went to school. So one day, David was in study hall at school, and an announcement was made over the loudspeaker that said, David Jeremiah, would you please come to the office? Your mother is here. So he went to the office, and lo and behold, his mother had come to the school. She had talked to the principal and gotten his permission to take David home to make up his bed and clean up his room. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine how mortified David, uh, Jeremiah, was as a young man? But he complied. When he got back to school, he found out quick the principal had told everybody about it. <laughs> And uh, he had seen, uh, he told everybody about it. So David Jeremiah never forgot the kidding that he got from his friends that day. But to this day, you know what he does? He makes his bed first thing in the morning. So anyway, thank God for mamas like that, that uh, there ain't no boot camp like mom's boot camp, right? So that kind of, that's a great story that kind of illustrates what the old covenant was like. Um, but I got another story for you. For the power of the new covenant... I'm reminded of the simple hillbilly that uh, took his first trip ever to a big city. And I forgot what business brought him there, but he wasn't able to take along any of his family. He was fascinated with all the big buildings, all the modern conveniences. He went to a large bank building. He was standing there in the lobby, and for the first time in his life, he saw what we know to be an elevator. He stood and watched that thing trying to figure it out. Then he watched as an older woman came into the building and got into the elevator, and uh, she was a little bent over, you know, and, and the years had uh, not been too kind to her, and the door closed, and a few minutes later, the door opened, and out walked the most beautiful, vivacious, 20-something-year-old girl that the old Bill, hillbilly had ever seen in his life. And so he had a funny look on his face, and a bystander noticed the funny look and said, Mr., what are you thinking? And the old hillbilly said, I should have brung my wife. <laughs> well, what the elevator couldn't really do, Grace does, right? I got saved, and the change was so dramatic that four months later, three more of my family members got saved. So following the law can only make you a better caterpillar. But grace transforms us into butterflies. That's what the author of Hebrews continues to tell us today. I think I said it last week. I always love to give John Bunyan's little poem here. He said, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids him fly and gives him wings. And we don't just need to be better people. We need transformation. And caterpillar is a great illustration of that, isn't it? You know, because caterpillars just crawl, but butterflies fly and they light things up. And that's what happens to children of God through the new birth. So let's go through the text again now, um, or at least the, the, the sections of the text with our points here. In verses 1 through 7, we see the first covenant had ordinances of divine service. So you're filling the blank, there's the word service. And those different um, ordinances were offered at the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle that later became the temple. And the temporary nature of these things is seen in the fact that not, God had never asked for a permanent home for the tabernacle. That was David's idea. So um, temporary is your fill in the blank there. And you think about it, you know, 
Uh, God had given them the tabernacle as a way to worship Him, to have their sins forgiven, to get them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They set up home in the promised land, and um, you know He wanted to be their God. And in some ways, He was and is. In other ways, they wanted to do their own thing, have a king like other nations, you know, all the different things. And that's been the story of struggle with God ever since. But Scripture gives vivid details about what it was like when the priests offered their sacrifices. And we read some of them here in the text. The priest would first have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he was imperfect. He was a sinner. Uh, you've heard the stories. Uh, some of them have biblical connection. Others were later offered by rabbis, you know. But uh, they say that, um, you know, because the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sins for the people in case they had done something that had offended God in the past year, they, uh, the legend grew that they would tie a rope to, and bells to the priest's uh, foot so that when he went in, if he did die in there, if God struck him dead in there because he hadn't confessed his sin right and gotten forgiven, and if God struck him dead for being an unholy person in a holy place, they could pull him out, you know. Uh, and that is not said in the Scripture, but it is certainly Jewish tradition that they did that, you know. And it really just makes you, it really fascinates you to think about, doesn't it? To illustrate the holiness of the place and how every you know the the priest didn't come out of there uh, you know uh, a, a holy enough that he didn't have to repeat the whole thing again in the year to follow. So every year he had to do it. Every year a, a new sacrifice uh, for himself and then for the people and going, taking the blood in there, reminding them how costly sin is. It brings death. And they had a ceremony that went with every piece of the furniture. And at times we go over those things. We're not taking the time now because of what he says in um, you know, we, verse 25, or I'm sorry, in verse Five, he says, we don't have time to go into these things now. So the point of the furniture is for another day. Uh, but the point of the sacrifice and their needing to be blood sacrifice goes on there. But the first covenant had ordinances of divine service. Verses 8 through 11, we see that the ordinances were symbols of which Christ is the substance. So the way into God's presence for everyone, as prophesied in Jeremiah 31, couldn't come through this first temple. He says that in verse 8. He says in verse 8, uh, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So the Holy of Holies was an earthly picture of a heavenly reality there was temporary forgiveness found by what the high priest did with the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies on earth, but permanent forgiveness, eternal redemption, could only be something that could be affected up in the heavenly realm. And you needed a mediator. You needed a better priest than the Aaronic priest. Hebrews has been telling us about Christ being a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I was thankful Dr. Adams backed me up this past week in saying that was Christ, and I think it was too, you know, that uh, Abraham met with Melchizedek. Some teach he wasn't, you know, but uh, I, I sure think he was, and it was nice to hear Dr. Adams agree with me. 
But um, the way to have forgiveness and a clean conscience for everyone, as prophesied in Jeremiah 31, couldn't come through reserving the Old Testament ordinances. Do you see that there in verses 9 and 10? It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. I think that's a clue, that verse 9 there, that Hebrews is written before the temple is destroyed because he seems to be referring to the fact that the sacrifices are still going on at the temple even though Christ has offered the perfect sacrifice. He says the present time, that sacrificial system still going on, and he's kind of lamenting there, and he's talking to his fellow Jews, uh, Jewish background believers, that what Christ has done for you really renders your, you don't need to go to the temple to be forgiven like you used to. You, a new reality has come because God has come to earth in Jesus Christ. Number, verse 10, concerned only with foods, drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So... Um, Remember, I think I talked about last time about how the Galatians verse says, the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. When Christ has come, we're no longer under the guardian, under the tutor. And I use the illustration of you have training wheels on a bike, but then you learn to ride the bike, you don't need the training wheels anymore. And uh, we would uh, really laugh uh, at... uh, you motorcycle riders, you know, if you were taking your next big trip, tri- tri- uh, trip, and you were on the two wheel there, but you had the, 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 you know, the other things down there like that, you know, um, because uh, you don't need them anymore. You've learned to ride, right? And uh, a child rides a bike; they don't need the training wheels. And he's saying something like that here: that Christ has come now, you guys. He's telling his audience, Christ has come. And yet you're going back to the pre-Christ things where the focus unfortunately had become on the things rather than them pointing to Christ who's now here. Does that make sense? Amen. Forgiveness of sins. Uh, Oh, okay. So just how he does that. This... uh, you know, relationship with God couldn't come through what you eat and drink. It couldn't come from various washings, couldn't come from fleshly ordinances. That's what he mentions there in verse 10. Forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience, time spent in God's presence came when Jesus came. And so now you have an ability to go directly to Christ rather than to have to go through a mediator. And he's wanting all the way back from chapter 4 when he says, come boldly into the presence, come boldly into the presence of God. Now that Christ has come, you can have a personal relationship with God that is the envy of all the Old Testament saints looking forward. They loved God. They tried to talk to Him. He came and met with them some. But every believer in Christ now can go into God's presence because of Christ's blood. It's not just the holy men, the pastor, the priest, whoever, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it were all, it's a priesthood of believers for us. You know, we all get to do that, which is great. And that's, he just get, builds on this. It gets better and better. Verses 12 through 15, Christ can make you feel clean on the inside forever. So the word's forever there. Um, verse 13, he mentions external. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying the flesh. What's he saying there? There's a temporary cleansing, but only on the outside, the flesh. Look at verse 14. How much more? There's that how how much more? So the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the blood of Christ isn't a temporary cleansing. 
It's not temporary forgiveness. It is a permanent cleansing, permanent forgiveness. This time it happens internally that affects everything. The conscience is free, and we walk in that freedom. It was for freedom that Christ sets us free, Paul says in Galatians. Uh, you know, so um, again, butterfly stuff rather than caterpillar stuff. A lot of times we feel like caterpillars still. That's our old nature talking and stuff. But uh, we, we've been transformed. We have a personal relationship that can grow and be leaned on and, and, and help us through life. The Holy Spirit with us is one of the privileges of that. So Christians don't always feel free, but if you're saved, you are free. So the words are there and that fill in the blank. I get pretty excited about this stuff. <laughs> Do you remember the three tenses of salvation that I've gone over here about how sometimes you're reading in the New Testament and it says, if you're a believer, and I think everyone here tonight is, uh, it says, you have been saved. Other times you're reading and it says, you are being saved. And other times you read and it says, you will be saved. Our faith has a past, present, future aspect to it, right? It's something that's been said once for all. It happened at a date and time in the past. We don't always know that date, but some of us do. I can tell you mine was December 16, 1984. But I, I want to help you. I, I need your help uh, with three Ps here. Let's see if we can do this. So a believer has been saved in the past tense because of Christ's blood and what he did for us. Sin no longer has its... They no longer will face the blank of sin. Penalty, good. I, I didn't set you up right for that, uh, Vicky. But they, they're not going to go to hell when they die. That's justification. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Let me see if I can get this right to help you guys. Uh, I did, you know, like volleyball, you set it up and then somebody spikes it. I missed the setup. <laughs> Believers are being saved in the present tense. Sin only has the, now we say Vicky's word, power. Sin only has the power we give it now, and there are ways to overcome it. That's sanctification. So, uh, you know, we had chains of sin on us. We were uh, under the penalty of sin, but the penalty uh, we won't ever face if we become a believer. Uh, but the power, the chains were off. We now have the power, to, because the Holy Spirit lives inside, we have the power to make choices we didn't make in the past. Um, and with Christ's help, with the Spirit of Christ's help inside of us, uh, we can make different choices. Now, if I willfully choose to disobey Christ and entertain any kind of sinful thought or action, then I have given sin new power, not permanent power. Sin can't have that anymore, but it's got temporary power, and I've given it there. And that's why it's so important that I... Uh, like Omar used to say, keep short sin accounts with the Lord, right? Get that sin identified and ask for forgiveness. And it's why you want to read the Bible and pray, why you want to gather with other believers, why you want to find your area of service, you know, and serve the Lord, uh, you, you know. Um, but what's not at stake when we sin is the loss of our salvation. He's using the word eternal here, right? Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption is ours. So in this present tense, I've been freed from the power of sin. It only has any power I now give it. And I can get that state turned back around as I confess my sin. But then their believers are also going to be saved in the future tense. Sin will not be present where they are going. Uh, and we call that glorification. So justification, 
a true reality based on what Christ did for us. We're uh, saved from the penalty of sin. In the future, it's glorification. I'll be saved from the very presence of sin in the future and never have to deal with it again. And in this middle, this time of sanctification, um, you know, I am being, uh, you know, I'm saved from the, I'm being saved from the power of sin as I make better choices than I used to make. Um, the neat thing is, even that struggle that we're in now, in this present tense, the Bible makes clear that Christ is our sanctification. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians that says, Christ is our justification, He's our sanctification, and other verses that put it together, He's our glorification. In other words, this is a done deal in heaven's eyes, which is pretty cool, because many times we still feel like a caterpillar. And He says, learn to use those wings, butterflies. You know, learn to use those wings. Uh, so the key word in verses 12 through 15 is the word what? I've already said it a couple times. Starts with the E. Eternal. Yeah, amen. It occurs three times in verse 12, verse 14, and verse 15. Because Christ offered himself once for all through the power of the eternal spirit, we who know him now have eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. That's great stuff. <laughs> so he's, he is eternity for us. He just is, you know. He came from eternity, as Micah 5 said. His days are from of old, of everlasting. He'll be born in Bethlehem, but his goings forth are from of old, of everlasting. And through the eternal spirit, he came, and he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Those who have received him have eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. And that's why it's so sad when anybody says you can ever really have that and then lose it and have it again and lose it again and have it again and lose it again. No, it's eternal. Key word in this section here. Well, verses 16 through 26, Moses sprinkled blood that was not his own. Christ shed blood that was his own. So verses 16 to 17 reminds us that a will takes effect after the death of the testator. That's one of the things Dr. Adams used the Luke 15 passages, and he talked a little bit about the prodigal son. And that was one of the shocking things about the prodigal son story. The prodigal son was basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. You know, I don't want to wait around to have, have what will come to me when you die. You know, and, uh, you know, every once in a while you run into some people like that. But it's just reminding us of that basic legal fact for the wills, provisions to kick in, for the promises to kick in, there has to be the death. And uh, verse 18 reminds us that even the first covenant was dedicated with blood. So let's, let's talk about this. After speaking with the Lord back in Exodus, Moses came and told Israel all that God had said. And they responded by saying, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. We will do. Now, they had already been delivered from Egyptian bondage. They were on their way to the promised land, and they had certain rules they were to obey and laws they were to follow, starting with the Ten Commandments and outward. Everything goes back to the Ten Commandments. And they said, we'll do it. We're so glad to be out of Egyptian bondage. We're so glad to be going to the promised land and have a place to call our own, you know. And you're talking about it, God, like it's going to be ours forever, like you promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the children of Israel have been living off that Abrahamic covenant, eternal, unconditional promise. Um, all the Lord has commanded, we will do. And Moses looked at him and said, was thinking, yeah, you won't. But God's gracious. God's loving. He's merciful. 
And there's so many parallels with us today, even though we've got a better covenant, you know. But uh, Moses took the blood of a sacrificial animal, again, drilling into them how costly a sin is, disobedience, it means death. He sacrificed an animal, the animal was dead, the blood was taken um, and sprinkled it on the people and said, as he sprinkled it like I'm doing now, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And I just want you to have that image in your mind. That day they all went home with blood on themselves to remind them they had made a covenant with God. Jesus is not ashamed of the bloody sacrifice he made on our behalf. Revelation 19 says when he comes riding from heaven on a big white horse, he'll be wearing a, a robe that will be dipped in blood. You know, and he's, when he comes down, he's coming down to shed the blood of enemies, you know, that are gathered against him. But the blood robe he's wearing is already bloody. He, you know, people talk about the shroud of Turin. Well, it's in heaven waiting to be <laughs> Jesus to have it when he comes back, right? So, you know, they, they talk about the shroud of Turin. They found the burial cloth of Jesus and stuff like that. Somewhere in there it was picked up, and I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just talking now, you know. But uh, he's wearing a robe dipped in blood when he comes back, you know. And he's not ashamed to identify with his blood for us. We, we don't want to be ashamed to identify with that blood either. After Jesus had done that with the people, uh, Moses, the tabernacle was built. And at its dedication, what did they do again? When they dedicated all the things on the tabernacle, they did the same thing. They sprinkled everything with blood to show this was covered in the blood. It was cleansed. The people already had need of forgiveness because they'd already blown it in the incident with the golden calf. Verse 22 tells us the principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So sin is costly. Its penalty is death. There has to be a substitute for that sin to be forgiven. Old Testament temporary sacrifices, animal dead, promises ex came into being like the will after the death, the testament after the death. And when Christ died, uh, his blood was shed, the penalty was paid, we could have eternal life. And this powerful thought comes to us in verse 23 and 24. Let me read verse 23 and 24 again. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice. There's our word better again, one of the key words of Hebrews. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Whew. Can you see Jesus after his death, still bloody all over, entering heaven? Can you see him sprinkling his own blood, not on copies, but on the real things in heaven? Whew. And he only had to do it once. Why? Because the other blood had been imperfect, so it had to be done over and over again. Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to permanently take away sin. All it could do is do a temporary covering. So sin was temporarily covered over until Christ came. But what did John the Baptist call Jesus? Did he say, behold, the Lamb of God who covers over sin for a while? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just sin covered over temporarily, but dealt with forever, taken outside the camp, but even greater than that, He took up to heaven, sprinkled those things, and all because He died, 
All the promises of heaven when he resurrected were able to come to fruition in him. All the promises of the will and testament of Jesus Christ come into being for us, an eternal inheritance and eternal redemption. Woo-hoo! Great stuff. Christ's blood was perfect. It only needed to be offered once. And that's a pretty good place to give the invitation, which is what he does here, verses 27 and 28. Are you prepared to meet your God? Not on the basis of being a sinner, but on the basis of the blood of Christ who has shed his blood for you. People all wonder what happens when you die. Verse 27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So he's connecting this eternal sacrifice of Christ with the day of judgment and how knowing him, turning to him, letting his blood cover over us, letting his blood take away our sin and cleanse us is the key to being ready to meet your God, that relationships with him. What happens when you die? Atheists say you you just die, you're buried, and that's it. (laughs) Reincarnation teaches you come back better or worse based on this life's works. Catholics say that most people are going to go to purgatory to work their way into heaven over thousands of years. But the truth is here in these verses. You will die and you will stand before God in judgment. And so we ask the question, why should God let you into heaven? I mentioned uh, Sunder Singh last week, the great Indian Christian from days gone by. When he was a boy, before he became a Christian, he stole money from his father's wallet. When his father confronted him, he denied it. Believing his son, Sunder Singh's dad had every servant in the house beaten. Had he done what he was supposed to do, all those people would have been spared judgment. If the son had done the right thing, all those people could have been spared punishment. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And there's that word eternal again. Because sinners like you and I have trusted in Christ, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. And... um, If anyone hears this later, you need to know that if you provide the sinner, Christ will provide the Savior. He'll take all the punishment due you on himself. You deserve it. You did the crime, but he did the time. And that is so cool about Jesus. When we understand that, verse 28 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so for those of us who know the Lord already, we asked a final question. Not are you ready for the day of judgment. Trusting Christ made you ready for that. Uh, Just freely accepting his offer and giving him your life to lead as the Lord of your life. You received his eternal salvation. But we've got another question before we're done here, and it's for all of us here tonight and all listening later. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? He's coming back for us. And after that, no more struggle with sin for us, just perfect salvation. And every time We take the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating the eternal life we have in Him, looking forward to that day when He will lead us personally in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And so Hebrews talks about the insufficiencies of the Old Covenant 
to provide eternal life. It wasn't even to give eternal life. It was meant to be temporary. It was meant all the articles of furnishings in the tabernacle, all the sacrifices, all the things about the high priest were meant to point us to our need of Christ so when he came, we could trust him and be permanently forgiven and have permanent relationship with him. And I just want to go over the verses uh, real quick here in Matthew 26, 16 through 19 that where Jesus specifically mentions uh, this new covenant that we're under, this new relationship we have with God made possible. And he does it in the language of the Lord's Supper. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, verses 16 through 29 is the whole passage. That was just a little bit of it there. Hebrews has gone into great length to tell us the way it was under the Mosaic Covenant, but he's talking, his first audience was Jewish Christians. Now it's all Christians who look on and all we can do is with grateful hearts be thankful for what Jesus did for us and also eagerly wait for him because he's coming back. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts, as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Today.